Welcome to the Jongets Games Podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from the most recent Good Games vlog. In that, I discussed my initial impressions for Cascadia, Golfmobile, and Ohio, Meltwater, Square on Sale, as well as Twisty Tracks. It's been a while since I've covered five of these in one video, so this one might be longer than usual, although all of these games are light to medium weight. None of them are particularly heavy. Now, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. If you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this, then I do hope you would consider directly supporting that campaign, and you can learn more about it by going to patreon.com slash Games. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as a comment on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. So the first game I'm going to be talking about today is Cascadia. Uh, this one was published by Flatout Games, or I guess maybe developed slash public, published by Flatout Games, but AEG sent me a copy of this game. Um, I'm fortunate. They actually send me a copy of a lot of the games they publish without even asking. So like a week and a half ago, the doorbell rang and I just opened a box and there was Cascadia. And I was really happy actually about that because I've seen a bunch of tweets about this, photos online, and I thought it looked really great. Um, this is a uh, current release, as you can see, and it's like a 30 to 45 minute game according to Board Game Geek. And I'll say that uh, I played this one once and we played a four player game, which is the most uh, the largest player count. Uh, now, I guess while I'm talking about length, I will say that our four player game took about 90 minutes. So 30 to 45 wasn't um, necessarily accurate for our um, for our first experience, but, um, you know, we actually, we were really enjoying it and just kind of chatting and hanging out. But either way, let's talk about how this game actually works. Um, in the middle of the table, uh, you put these five cards out. Um, you draw a random fox, a hawk, tu um, not tuna, salmon, <laughs> uh, elk, and a bear, and they have scoring conditions on them. And there's, I think, five of these cards, so you have a different uh, mix of these scoring conditions in each game. And then on your turn, you simply take one of these hexagonal tiles from the middle of the table, as well as the animal tile that is associated with it. And that's it. So like, if this was my turn right now, I could take one of these four pairs. If I took this tile here, it would come with a fox. If I took that tile there, it would come with a bear token. Um, then you take the tile and you add it to your overall tiling area. Each person has their own part of Cascadia that they are building out. And then you take the token, the animal token, and you hypothetically, hopefully, put it down onto a tile in your area that shows that icon. Uh, so for example, in this area over here, there's a little bear icon and an elk icon on this single hex. So that means I could put a bear or an elk token down on top of that. Uh, now, you're growing out this hex grid in front of you with all of these tokens, and the reason you're doing that is to get points at the end of the game. Now, this is one of those games where you score all of your points once the game is over and you get points for a wide variety of things but in the middle of the game you're just building this out every single turn one of your turns you take a tile uh, you take a token you put those down and then you move on and I think you take 20 turns um, so at a four-player game, that's going to be the, the longest way to play the game because you actually put less tiles in the supply, essentially, and you keep going until all the tiles are gone. So if you play with three players instead of four, then that's 20 less player turns that happen. So it's just going to be a shorter experience, although I've only played this one at four so far. Uh, now, the way these things score is different for each of the animal types, like in theme. Like the bears seem to score for being uh, clustered together in various uh, sizes. The elks are all about formations, like an exact pattern of elks in your area. The salmon want lines of salmon um, in various ways. They score in various ways. And the uh, the hawks, well, I'm, I'm not sure how all of them work, but I will say in this one, it was all about line of sight, like actually making kind of a webbed pattern uh, of one hawk being able to see another. And then 
these foxes scored for being adjacent to a bunch of the same type of other animals. So I'm going into too much minutiae here, but as you can see, just by putting these animal tokens down, their location in your uh, hex area is super important because that is going to dictate how these things uh, score. Um, you know, maybe you're putting an elk down to match that specific formation, but then you're also putting the elk down next to a fox because it's your third elk next to that fox and that's going to score you more points. So hypothetically, you want these kind of to bounce back and forth. Um, you also have things like where these um, hawks score on specific spots because they want to have straight lines to other hawks. And that means if you place an another token on a great spot for a hawk, for example, over here, there's a bear right there. And if that was a hawk, then that would have been great. Um, then you're essentially denying potential points that you could have had for getting that hawk. Now, um, there's only one other tiny rule to mention, and that's these little acorn tokens. And you get them uh, in a way that I won't describe, but th there's a way to pick these up. And you can spend these to get extra flexibility, where you can actually take any tile and any token instead of having a matched pair, or you could dump all the animal tokens back into the bag and pull some new ones out. Uh, but these are worth one point at the end of the game. Uh, now, in addition to that, when the game is over when you, and you score all five of these animals, you also score for the regions. There's, I think, five different types of regions with uh, like kind of grasslands and forests and water and mountains. And um, you get one point for each hex tile in your largest area of that type. And then if you have the largest of that area amongst all the players, you get an extra three points. And then second place gets a point, I think, if you're in a four-player game. So what that means is this is a very nose-down type game where you're really paying attention to all the stuff that you're doing, but you do need to pay attention to what other people are doing as well because of those areas. Um, when we were playing this game, I found myself for essentially the first two-thirds of the game, um, not really paying attention to anything that my opponents were doing uh, beyond maybe s thinking like, man, I really want that hawk. I hope Matt doesn't take that hawk. And I kind of look at Matt's area and I'm like, I don't think Matt, Matt wants to take a hawk. Okay, I could probably get that tile. And then maybe he takes it and then I get really surprised. Uh, but once we got into the last third of the game, I did start to look around at all the other players' areas to see like, how big is Claire's mountain range? How big is Jessica's water area? Just to see like, am I in contention to have the biggest one? Because getting an extra three points for that is is pretty significant. I can't remember what the final scores were in this game, but um, three points was definitely something to pay attention to. And I was surprised at how relatively easy it was to glance at my opponent's areas and get a good idea of how big their areas were. I, I will say that based off of how these hexes go together, it is possible that from across the table, it looks like, you know, that water section is added to that other water section, but it isn't quite. Uh, there were a couple times where I slightly misread that. But for the most part, um, I was really impressed with this game. And and honestly, going into it, I thought I was going to like it because I like tile-laying games. And I like puzzly, victory point pattern type things. But I was worried about analysis paralysis uh, with all of these different tile options and animal options and how the different tiles score. And also the majorities trying to pay attention to what other people are doing. I was, I was worried that I would really fall into an analysis paralysis spiral. And I didn't. That was a really pleasant surprise for me. Like there were definitely a couple turns where I crunched, you know, through many different options, but I never felt like that, um, that, that awful, uh, embarrassed feeling when you're taking way too long in your turn and you're like, uh, just give me a second. I just need to think a little bit more. And you're all worried. I never got that moment in this game. And, and I totally expect it to, uh, especially at the four player count. Um, downtime just wasn't that bad. Even when my opponents were thinking through their turns, I was taking that time to analyze their areas, to be like, okay, how big is that grassland over there? How big is that mountain area over there? Um, you know, since my opponent was thinking about what tile to take, I had that opportunity to kind of judge where things were. I didn't have to think about that in the middle of my turn. And, you know, if I calculate the size of a mountain range of somebody else and then they get a mountain, well, it's pretty easy to add one to that. Uh, so, yeah, I've been really surprised um, by how 
how um, fluid this one play of the game was, and I'm looking forward to playing it more. Um, like I said, I am predisposed to enjoy Thailand games, so I thought I was going to like this one already. I like the art overall uh, on the cards, and I think, honestly, the art on the tiles is uh, is fine. Like, it, it looks nice, and it's also easy enough to tell what it is from across the table, which is really important. And these um, these tiles that you put the animals down on are wooden tiles with, like, a silkscreen animal on top. It just looks really cool, and I, I just enjoyed the puzzle as much as I was expecting to, and um, it, it was just a more pleasant uh, experience from a downtime perspective than I thought. And I think I'm starting to repeat myself, but um, there's really not a whole lot else to say about Cascadia. It teaches super fast. I've essentially taught you the rules to the game right now, uh, minus the minutia of how the uh, scoring of the cards works, which is really not that big of a deal either. Um, and I can't say what this is like to play multiple times, because again, I've only played this one once. Um, and I do feel like I would probably enjoy it even more at slightly lower player counts, like maybe three instead of four. Four was fine. I, I would not say no to playing it at four again, but it will be probably closer to a 60-minute experience, maybe even 50 minutes uh, for our group if we play this one at three uh, as opposed to four, just because that's a lot of extra time. But um, I, it was a really enjoyable experience all the way through, and I, I didn't really feel like it was too long. And, and there was a lot of great moments when you get that perfect animal. Like for me, for example, I went very hard on the hawk scoring. I won't go into the specifics of it, but you had to have this very specific kind of line of sight web of hawks in your area. And I ended up scoring like 30 something points, 31 points or something like that, because I had all these hawks perfectly positioned out in this pattern to get just a ton of victory points. And that felt so satisfying. Um, there's there's a lot of highs in this game. And, you know, there's some little lows where somebody takes the tile you want or the animal token that you want. But, you know, you pull another one out of the bag and maybe you have one of these nature tokens and you get rid of it to jump, uh, to bring a bunch more animals out of the bag. And there's also a lot of moments where somebody else dumps those tokens back into the bag by spending a point. And you're like, no, I was so sure I was going to get one of the two hawks that were out there. But, you know, now it's back up to the randomness of the bag as to whether they'll come out. So yeah, Cascadia is really great. Um, I'm looking forward to playing this one more as a relatively uh, reasonable size box. It's not a huge one on the shelf. And um, it's just a cool tiling puzzle. Uh, Alvin mentions that this is not as punishing as Calico. Uh, Calico is a game that I have not played. I know it's about uh, making a quilt with cats, and it looks like an incredible brain burner. And I will say that this uh, game, Cascadia, did not burn my brain um, as badly as I thought. There's definitely a lot to think about, but I thought it was going to be more of a brain burner than it actually was, which honestly was a pleasant surprise for me. As I keep saying, I was worried about um, the downtime that didn't actually end up coming up. Reishi mentions that it really does well at different player counts. I could totally see that. Um, I, the majorities, the amount of points you get for having the most of a certain spot uh, of a certain type is is different. Um, I could see really enjoying this one at two because really this game is all about that personal puzzle that you are putting together in front of you. And I suppose at lower player counts, you're going to have even more control um, over, or you could see farther in the future about what your options will be because you always have four lots that you can choose from no matter what the player count is. Jinrei says that Cascadia broke... Uh, their stance on solo gaming, uh, they pull this one out to play solo quite a lot. Quite a lot. Uh, I don't really play solo games, but I've seen uh, quite a few people mentioning online that this one plays great at solo because I guess then you just really are just doing the animal puzzle. I haven't looked at the rules of the solo game, but um, I, I can imagine that it, you know, it's just really focused on making that overall animal puzzle work. And uh, I can see that being satisfying for people who enjoy solo games. So yeah, that's going to bring this uh, part on Cascadia to a close, and now let's move on to the next game, and this one is Golf, Mobile, and Ohio, and this is a very different game <laughs> from the one I just mentioned. Uh, this is a cube rail style game, and in fact, uh, this is the only cube rails game I'm talking about today, um, and this is one that's been on my radar for quite some time. Um, this is 
a game that's all about auctions, and that is something that has scared me about this game. I've actually, I avoided it at first, like many months ago, because as I started to enjoy cube rail style games, I was like, okay, well, I'm enjoying the stocks and I'm enjoying laying the track out, but auctions are still not my favorite thing. And I heard that Golf Mobile uh, Ohio, or GMNO <laughs> is an easier way to say it, is just auction after auction after auction. And that is true, but I will say that it did not feel like other auction games, and I really quite enjoyed it. Uh, now, this game originally came out in 2008, but it got a reprint uh, with a nice box and a nice map uh, from uh, Rio Grande Games a couple of years ago. And um, I played it in Tabletop Simulator, but this uses the assets from the uh, Rio Grande version of the game. Uh, now, <laughs> GMNO is a strange game in comparison to most other Cube Rails games. And one of the reasons I've really enjoyed diving into Cube Rails is because one game can be so different from the next. Like, it almost seems disingenuous to, to lump some of these games together uh, because they, you know, might have cubes and they might have a train theme, but that's kind of where the similarities end. Um, in most Cube Rail games, you have companies like maybe four, maybe five, maybe six. In GMNO, there are, I think, 23 different train companies, which is a lot more than five or six, as you can probably imagine. And in this game, you do collect stocks, but it does not feel like stocks in other types of games. And there's only two stocks for each of these types of uh, each of these companies. Now, at its heart, at a very high level, this is a really fascinating network growing style game. It's fully competitive, but what you do in this uh, game is on your turn, you take one action from, I think, three options, but 95% of the time, you're going to be starting an auction. You're going to take one of these green charters from beside the board, and you're going to put it into the current auction spot, and then you're going to say a number of money that you have. Um, it, you often have, you know, like 20 money, maybe 17, 15 money. So it's not like you're bidding, you know, 56 money for one of these things. And then you have just a standard auction, like nothing particularly fancy about it. People can pass or they can increase the number. You keep going until everybody passes. Then things get really interesting um, that in a way that I've not tried things before. Sorry. Then things get really interesting um, in a way that I haven't seen in any of these other games. And that is that um, in a lot of Cube Rails games, the money that you pay for like a stock goes into a treasury for that company. But this game has 23 different companies. There are no treasuries that you have to take care of. Instead, you take all of the money from the auction that you just won and you immediately build track. And then that's probably essentially the only track you're going to be building for that company uh, for the game. Uh, any excess money is lost. And when you put the track out on the board, it's super simple. It costs three money per cube that you place and that's it. Like, there aren't even any exceptions. So that means from an auction perspective, you know if the amount that you bid was divisible by three, then that's as efficient as you can be. And if you bid a little bit more than that to outbid somebody else, well, maybe you're throwing a little bit of money away. But again, unlike a lot of Cube Rails games, this one, it doesn't matter how much money you have at the end of the game. This game is all about having victory points, uh, which is something that many uh, um, of the winsome type games have, but it's it's more uncommon. Uh, so when you actually lay these tracks out, you just get points. You get a point for the charter you took, and you get a point for every city that you place a cube down into. And then most importantly, you get a point for every new other color that is now touching that overall network. And when you build it into certain cities, that unlocks the ability to lay out more uh, track for different railroads. At the beginning of the game, I think there's only six of these uh, charters that can be available. Um, in this example right now, there's like <laughs> uh, 15 or something like that. So as you grow out from the perimeter of the map, you unlock the ability to get access to new railroads. And that's why it has this wonderful network growing vibe to it. I just loved the way the map evolved as the game went on. Because at the beginning of the game, you just start on these specific spots around the outside, but then you go 
to a certain spot, which unlocks a new company, which goes down and somebody can do a charter for, and then they grow from that spot out. So you have this wonderful expanding series of all these different colored cubes. There's six different colored cubes, and I'm not going to go into the specifics of how you actually choose which of these colors to put down. It's, it's pretty fascinating, but I'm trying not to go into the specifics. But I... Oh, man, I was really impressed with this game and I was scared of it going in, honestly, because it is just an auction after auction after auction. And even though the auction structure is like a straight up standard auction, like there's nothing fancy or unusual about it, when you win, that's where it gets really interesting because it's not just about outbidding your opponents. It's about also putting enough money in to be able to uh, lay enough cubes to get a number of victory points that makes it feel worth it to spend that amount of money. And then once you spent your money, once you go down to a very low amount of money, you might not have enough to win any auctions. And you can put these secondary stocks up, and I won't talk about the details of how we do that. It's very simple. But then once a couple of those happen, we pay dividends. Um, now, dividends for stocks is a thing that many train slash cube rails games do, and this game is so simple. Every one of your charters is going to give you five or three money, and every one of these secondary uh, charters is going to give you three money. And that's it. You just count up the little dollar signs on the cards that are in front of you, you get that money, and you move on. There's no stock value track, there's nothing like that. That's all abstracted away. And again, that's part of the reason why I enjoy the breadth of um, mechanical variety with these Cube Rails games, because, you know, some games go heavy on stock um, market valuation tracks and buying and selling stocks. This game, it seems like it's all about the fact that there's 23, I think, <laughs> tw more than 20 different companies that you can build out, and that that's really a big, unique factor to this game. Uh, so yeah, you're just winning auctions, you're throwing cubes out like crazy, and you're getting victory points, just squeaking them out where you can. And I played this game once, we played it at four players, and it took like 65 minutes? It was really quick. I was super surprised. And I almost won this game. Uh, so the game got really close to being over. In fact, the image that I have up right now, the game is probably just like two or three turns away from being over. I just wanted to show you how much the map can be covered with all these colorful cubes. And it was my turn. And I had a position. I had the ability to start an auction that I could just win. I had more money than everybody else, and money doesn't mean anything at the end of the game, so I just spent all my money, who cares? I could trigger the end of the game and then tie for the win. If you have the same number of points as somebody else at the end of the game, you both share the victory. And this is my first time playing this game, and a couple of the people in this game had played it like seven or eight times. And I was just sitting there thinking, it'd be more fun to win by myself, right? <laughs> so I decided to uh, take a gamble. Um, I expanded a railroad. I'm not going to talk about the details of that. It's it's simple. And um, let the turn go on. And I ended up coming in second place. <laughs> it, it was a little hard to math out exactly what was going to happen. Well, that's the thing. You can't math out what exactly is going to happen because... Some people might bid in ways that you don't fully expect. One of the players who was in, I think, third place decided to place a bid that that put a lot of chaos and, and instability into suddenly how the end game state was going to happen. And when it all shook out, I got second place. So that's probably my own hubris. Like, I should have just taken the tide win. But I was honestly curious just to... So I wasn't quite done with the game. I wanted to play around with it just a little more to see what would happen when I, if I tried to squeak a couple more points out, and obviously that did not work. So a big part of this game is, is reading the map, because as I said, when you lay these cubes out, you get bon you get extra points for touching your new cubes to other different color cubes. And the winning move for uh, the person in this game who won, Adam, was to build, um, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, they built eight cubes out, which I think, you know, cost 24 money at least, and they got a bunch of victory points for that because they connected up four cities, but then they also connected up to, I think, three or so other colors. So they got, I think, around eight victory points for that. 
um, and that's, you know, put them just like one or two spots ahead. And this game is about timing, like most auction games, like you want to have enough money to win an auction at the right time. And that's put me off a lot of auction games in the past, but for some reason, in this one, I didn't mind it so much. And uh, I did pretty well. Like I said, I was, uh, I, I could have chosen to share in a victory in this game. So, you know, maybe if I'd been skunked in this game, I'd have a different opinion of it, but I don't think I would. I really aesthetically enjoyed the story of how this played out. And I, I know I'm a broken record at this point, if you've heard me talk about Cube Rails games in the past, but part of the reason I enjoy these games is because they take about 60 minutes to play and they tell a fascinating story that's interesting, even if you're not winning. I, I really enjoyed seeing these tracks form out on the board. Um, I won this uh, auction to put a bunch of cubes going up the, the northern pass here, and one of the people I was playing the game with, who's played it like eight times, was like, oh wow, I'm, no, people very rarely take that northern pass. And I was like, cool, well, hopefully this isn't a mistake. And I guess it wasn't, considering I could have tied for the win at the end of the game. Um, but I was like, that's cool. Like I'm doing something that people oftentimes don't and that's gonna unlock new opportunities and it's gonna make the map look different. And again, I've only played this game once, but the people that I played it with, two of them have played it like seven or eight times and they really enjoyed it. And I could see myself uh, enjoying this one a lot in the future. The biggest barrier for this game is the fact that it's auction after auction after auction, and that's gonna turn a lot of people off. Uh, but the fact that it's an auction game where you're buying stocks, but you don't have stock valuations to worry about really, it really just makes it work for me. So yeah, I've been super impressed with this game. I feel like I'm uh, maybe talking in circles at this point. Um, I'm, you know, continue to be a uh, overly uh, interested in quirky mechanics. So like learning that this game has, you know, 20 plus different companies that you're working from uh, and that you have these different, six different cubes, but like different companies are gonna share the cube lines and you don't need, you mean to make sure not to connect them. Man, all that stuff just seems so neat. And uh, yeah, it's just an impressive game that felt like it was doing something different even from all of the other Cube Rails games that I have played. Uh, and I've played a lot now. Uh, I've actually keeping a track. I have a spreadsheet. Um, and this is, uh, as far as I can tell, the 21st Cube Rails game that I've tried over the last seven or so uh, months. And I've got a list of 10 more that I still want to get to. Uh, part of me wants to make like a Cube Rails video, just talking about my experiences with cube rails, but um, I want to play a few more. And honestly, that's part of the reason why this one got played. Uh, I'd like to make a cube rails video and I didn't want to make that video without having tried GMNO. And I'm glad I did. Um, I imagine this one will make that video if I end up putting it on there. Um, I played a bunch that I haven't talked about in Good Games Vlogs. Uh, one I played a week or two ago was called uh, Dutch Intercity. And um, that one is also auction after auction after auction. And I did not like that game very much at all. I only played that one once, but my initial impression of Dutch Intercity was feeling confused and dumb and not really enjoying it. And my initial impression of GMNO was was feeling confused in a fun way and then just enjoying the process of how it all went out. So yeah, uh, that is gonna wrap up essentially where I'm at with GMNO. I don't have a copy of this one, but um, I'd certainly look forward to trying this one more. I'm not sure if I'd actually get this played that much with my current gaming group because auctions aren't a big thing for them. Like <laughs> it's, it's not a mechanic that uh, people in general in my group enjoy. So this might be one that I will continue to enjoy on the internet with uh, some of my friends who enjoy this kind of stuff. Um, but I'm just glad this exists uh, and I would uh, actively look forward to playing this one more. So Christian mentions here that they just picked this up after listening to the Dads on a Map podcast, which is something I'm not familiar with, but apparently they talked about it and apparently they liked it. <laughs> so I guess I'm not alone. I mean, again, a couple of the people that I played it with, um, the ones who taught me, they really enjoyed this game. So that, uh, that definitely set things off in a, in a good direction. Although a lot of them enjoyed Dutch Intercity. So, you know, there's a lot of room for personal taste with these Cube Rails games. And Christian, you, you mentioned if I was planning on doing a top Cube Rails video at some point. Yeah, I, I imagine you asked that before I kind of 
<laughs> organically mentioned that I'm planning on doing a video about that. I'm not sure if it's going to be a top 10 video. I was thinking about it more. I might do like a, just a journey through cube rails, kind of like I did for Rondell games, um, where I was thinking about this actually this morning, where maybe I start with like the simplest cube rails games and then go to the most complex and just kind of discuss why each of those are interesting. And maybe I talk about 10, maybe I talk about more or less, I, I don't know. Um, but I think I would probably enjoy that more. Uh, I'm not crazy about the, the top 10 framework because, you know, they're just my personal opinions and that can v really vary. I'm much more interested in talking about how these games interact with each other mechanically. So I think it's uh, possible that I'll do one of those. But again, I have like 10 more games I want to get through before I actually uh, invest in doing that. Maybe not 10. I'd really like to play at least five of the games that are on my list. So um, we'll see. I, <laughs> I don't have a time limit or a, a, a specific idea of when that'll happen, but hopefully at some point soon. All right, it's now time to move on to the next game, and this one is Meltwater, a game of tactical starvation. So, happy sunshine rays going on here. <laughs> this is a two-player-only game that is published by Hollenspiel, and it came out a few years ago. And I remember hearing about it when it first came out a few years ago, where people were talking about it's this super dark theme of like a post-apocalyptic war in Antarctica as all of humanity is being exterminated, but the U.S. and the USSR are still fighting. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, but uh, I didn't give it too much extra thought a couple years ago when it first came out. But now as I'm enjoying more Hollenspiel titles and getting more interested in these things, I decided to pull the trigger. And I picked up a copy of this one along with some other games uh, that I ordered from them. And I've had it for a little while now, and I finally got it played. And let's talk about this weird game. So <laughs> you have a map of Antarctica, and thematically, um, the Cold War turned hot. Uh, we launched all our nukes, and the USSR launched all their nukes, and the world is pretty much done for. And the last remnants of humanity have gone to Antarctica, which apparently has the least amount of radiation in this thematic scenario, but the US and the USSR are still fighting with each other, and they are still, you know, trying to kill each other, even though the world is coming to an end. So mechanically, the way this game works is you are controlling your forces. In this game, I played the USSR, which was red, and then uh, my friend Matt played the US, which was blue. And on your turn, uh, the first thing that happens is a starvation phase, where you check to see who starves? Uh, odds are good somebody's starving out here in Antarctica. And I'm not going to go into the minutia of how that's calculated, but each one of these uh, hexes can support two tokens, and then that can be modified, either up with these supply depots or down when they become dirty, because these little black disks that are scattered around the coastline are dirty disks. They're the disk spots are um, dead zones where nothing can survive, and adjacent are dirty, which is going to be harder to survive. And this is just the radiation encroaching. So after you check to see if anybody is starving, you remove the starving people, and then you can take four actions. And those actions let you move people around, hopefully, you know, probably away from the radiation. Um, you can also press gang the uh, civilization, uh, the uh, civilians, some of them are neutral, you press gang them into being your civilian. So you say, hey, you are at USSR now. You can also militarize your civilians, turning them into little soldiers. And this game feels like a war game to a certain extent. I mean, I'm not experienced with war games, but it has a war game feel to it. But you have very few um, actual military units. You start the game with a couple of these, and you can have, I think, at most four of these uh, military units on the board. And one action that you can do is attack. You can only attack with these military units, and you have to be adjacent to the opposing military unit. And it's really simple. You just remove both of the military units. So it's a... <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, eye for an eye type situation. And then you place a dead zone down onto the closest dirty spot to where the attack came from. And the reason I'm going into this minutia is because 
This is where the game got really interesting for me. And honestly, this is how I won the game. Spoiler alert, I did win this game. Uh, because as we're starting to play this game, uh, my friend, uh, myself and my friend Matt, uh, we were, you know, avoiding the dead zones and we were kind of pushing people around. You could threaten people, like make them flee a hex and then maybe they starve at the start of the next round. Um, but there was a moment, you know, maybe like 20, 25 minutes into the game where I realized I could position myself um, next to uh, my opponent's area where they had a whole bunch of their units and they had a oh, they had a whole bunch of civilians and they had one army person. I ran over and then I did an attack and that spot was uh, dirty. So by doing the attack, it eliminated my soldier and their soldier and it put a dead token in the middle of their spot, right in the middle of a bunch of their civilians. That was the closest dirty spot. And then my turn ended. My friend's turn started, starvation happens first, and everybody on a dead zone dies, so that everything on that spot was wiped out. And that was the moment where we were both like, oh, okay, starting to see how this game clicks. Because if I'm being honest, I was not enjoying this game for the first 30% of it. And this is, I've only played it once, but we started playing this game and I had such a hard time parsing who's starving, who isn't, what is, what's a dead zone, what isn't, what should I even be doing here? And we were just kind of like doing things. At the beginning of the game, there's like none of these black tokens around, you know, mo most of Antarctica is open. And we were just kind of taking turns and being surprised at how things happened. And, and I was just kind of frustrated trying to parse the game situation. And I, honestly, like 30% in, I was like, I guess this game isn't for me. I'm really not enjoying it. But then around the moment, you know, maybe 30, 40% in, when I made that one particular attack, we both realized, oh, there's like a whole nother level here where you can be so offensive, even as you lose your military units to place these down. That's when the game really started to open up. And honestly, right before that, like a turn or two before that, my friend did a crazy threatened turn. I moved one of my soldiers out of position and then my friend moved their soldier in and threatened a bunch of my people out and they all starved. And I was like, what? And at that point I felt like, oh man, I'm losing this game. And then like a turn or two later, I was like, wait a second. And I did my attack and, you know, <laughs> dead zoned a bunch of their stuff. And it just went back and forth. And there was this moment, probably more like 60% through the game, where I felt like I could see the code of the matrix, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, like suddenly, you know, you see all the lines falling down. And you're like, oh, I get it. Like suddenly it was way easier to grok where things were, not necessarily what you could do to play well. Because I think, honestly, you know, I didn't play well this entire first game. I think you have to play this game a few times to get good at it. But it suddenly got fun. Like it started to get fun about 30% in and about 60% in, it got really fun and really interesting and fascinating because I felt like suddenly... I was making smart decisions because I understood the ramifications of those decisions. So I've only played this game once, but um, it really turned around on me <laughs> over the course of that one play. I went from um, pretty much actively disliking it to really enjoying it. And, you know, I did win the game, so maybe that's part of my bias, but I will say that my friend who lost um, also quite enjoyed it. Uh, and actually, speaking of the endgame state, I have a, uh, an image of what Antarctica looks like when the game is over. It's just dead zones everywhere, and you win the game once all of your opponent's units are gone. And in this position, a dead zone happened to eliminate the final U.S. civilian from the map. And, you know, us as the USSR, we had a whole bunch of civilians and a couple of armies out there. It was a pretty solid victory overall, uh, as long as you don't consider the fact that, you know, <laughs> there's like four hexes left that are hospitable on the entire planet for human civilization. And these people are probably not long for this world. But you know what? They lived longer than the, the, the U.S., so that means a win. Uh, now, actually, one thing I didn't mention, <laughs> coming back to these dead zones, is there are these cards, they're kind of forecast cards, that tell you where new dead zone tokens are going to be arriving on the main map, and also a new civilian token that gets added in. And again, you can pull these neutral civilians in and press gang them to turn them into your people, and as long as there are more of your people alive, 
when every one of your opponents are gone, that's how you win. And this is also a part where the game started to click because for the first 30%, I was like barely even paying attention to the first card. And then the next 30% to like 70% of the game, I was paying tons of attention to the first card, but no attention to the second card because that just seemed like one thing too many. I just, it was just too much. But then the moment it all kind of clicked is when I was like, okay, I got it. This card's what happening, what's happening right after my turn. And the next card is what's happening right after my opponent's turn, which means as long as my units are safe through both of these cards, then then that's looking pretty good. Like having this two card forecast means you do have a random deck, but you can have quite a bit of control. You can say, okay, do I flee or not? Uh, for much of the game, my opponent had uh, a unit way over here in the... I don't know if it's the West, uh, a peninsula of Antarctica. And this got more and more dead. More dead zones got piled up. And he kept leaving that person there because they knew they could just run through the dead zones once they militarized, which they did. Um, but they figured there was no reason to run through the dead zones until they could see that suddenly, okay, the last, that spot is finally threatened. So this game really is all about what do I need to do right now? You look at the forecast, where the dead zone's coming, and how is that going to affect me? How is it going to affect my opponent? And can I make it worse for them? You know, maybe you do an attack with one of your soldiers putting down a dead zone in a spot that's going to impact how the next dead zone is going to be laid by the game itself. Um, also, there's a subtle rule about if there's ties on where the uh, tokens go down, they have to go into empty spots. So you can control that tempo as well, because if two spots are occupied and one has neutral civilians and one has your enemy civilians, you're going to choose the enemy ones. But there were many times where I took that decision away from my opponent by fleeing out of one of those spots or maybe uh, threatening the neutral one out so that they'd have to place the dead token on the empty spot. There's just a lot of control that you have in this really strange game. And it didn't feel as depressing as I thought it would, I guess, because we were thinking about the game from a very abstract gamey perspective. I mean, if you really think about the theming of what's going on, it's, it's atrocious. Um, but uh, overall... It, it, there was just so much control and there's such a narrative to this game um, as, you know, oh, it seems like we're losing. Oh, it seems like we're winning. And there was one point where uh, a little bit later on from this image, um, due to a couple of attacks, we actually had a wall of dead zones between all of the red tokens and all the blue tokens. So at that point, it was like the situation was getting so bad that we almost went into our own enclaves, but then we like ran a soldier through dead zones to the, through that wall to then, you know, drop more dead zones and blast things from the other side. It was just... Oh, man, it, very fascinating in, in a way. And I'm looking forward to playing this one more. Uh, I know my friend Matt quite enjoyed it, so I think we'll probably play this one more in the future. I don't think we're going to be, like, clamoring to play it, but I'm really glad that it clicked to a certain extent. And I'm sure if it takes three, five, eight months for me to play this game again, then I'm probably going to have that first 30% where I'm like, wait, what's going on now? <laughs> but knowing that it can click at a certain point and that you still have that narrative, even if you're not making great decisions, uh, means that um, I'm happy. I'm happy to have uh, played this game, and I'm happy to hopefully play this game in the future and introduce this to uh, some of my friends. I, there, there's some people I play games with I think this will bounce hard off of, but people who enjoy the overall narrative of how a game could go, I think, will really fall into <laughs> the uh, the story that progresses through this. Like, as I said, uh, my opponent had this civilian way off on a peninsula. The dead zones were piling up. They militarized that civilian, and then more neutral civilians showed up on a boat, and they press ganged those, and then at a certain point, they said, okay, let's all run, and they ran through a bunch of dead zones. Um, uh, actually, now that I think back on it, I wonder if only the army could have run through those dead zones. I wonder if the civilians could have. We might have got that rule wrong. It's entirely possible we got other rules wrong. But the narrative of that moment, we were talking about, like, you know, what what it must be like for those people way off there on the side and then trying to come over here and rejoin the other enclave and stuff. It just it just had had a story to it in a way that I'm not used to in games like this. And I was really impressed by all that.
Looking at the comments, Reishi says, uh, I hoped we'd move to Antarctica because that's where all the penguins are at. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no penguins in this game. I think you can assume the penguins are doing just about as well as the humans. And, you know, thematically, if you think about it too much, it does fall apart, and that's fine. Like, you're trying not to starve out here, but you're just being on the open ice in Antarctica, which is one of the most hostile places on the planet anyway. So you'd think that it would be, you wouldn't be able to survive off just like meltwater, but maybe that's what they're surviving off of. Maybe it's penguins and whatnot. And the uh, maybe these dirty areas, um, you can survive less because it's hard to wipe out what uh, wildlife is actually there. Um, I listened to a podcast uh, interview with the designer of this game, and uh, I vaguely remember they said that they didn't put a whole lot of research into doing it in, Ant in Antarctica. It just... It worked, so they went for it. Like, you know, don't don't worry about too much of why it would probably never actually happen. It's just, it's a framework for, you know, this very grim uh, setting. And uh, yeah, it looks like some other people are, uh, are definitely agreeing with me. Uh, the starvation phase in the game is brilliant. I will say that was my biggest frustration in the first third uh, of the game because there's a lot of hexes and we, we're just like constantly checking and checking and checking. Is this starving? Is this starving? And then, you know, as we got more into the game, it kind of emerged. Also, we more had a feeling of like, okay, we've checked everything. What has happened since the previous starvation phase? Well, a couple of dead zones arrived and, you know, we can parse that. And also, you know, one person took four actions, we could parse that. So we stopped feeling like we had to check the entire map after every, uh, at, at the end of every single turn. And that streamlined the situation quite a bit as well. So yeah, that is uh, Meltwater. It's it's a fun game with a, an awful super grim setting. <laughs> Uh, so let's move on to uh, another abstract game that um, has a very abstract setting. This is Square on Sale. Uh, this game is old. It came out in 2005, and I had not heard about it until a month or two ago, I think. And this is a very peculiar abstract style game. I've played it once, and it is effectively um, Othello with a turn-by-turn -turn auction mechanic. And you know, I say auction, it might send some people screaming. It's it's not your typical kind of auction. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the specifics of how this works because it's 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 really strange. So at a very high level, this is Othello. You have a uh, square board, a square grid. It's a five by five. And what you're trying to do is put your tokens down onto these zones. And whenever you do that, and then there's um, uh, like a line between uh, one of your tokens and another one of your tokens, you put more of your tokens on top. You essentially flip the color of all of those. But this is a multiplayer game that you can play, I think, up to four players. So, um, you know, if we uh, take an example here, we've got a yellow token and then there's three red uh, in a row. So if I put a yellow token on the end of that row, we would have yellows on either end of a row, or I guess in this case a column, and then two red in the middle, and you would plunk yellows on down on top of both of those. So by putting one token down, you actually kind of put three tokens down, and that works just like Othello. But the way this gets crazy is because the way you actually put your initial tokens down is by winning multi-turn auctions. Now, on your turn, what you do is you make a bid on one of these squares. You have a certain number of these money tokens and you place the bid down and then you put one of these little auction counters. And this is really where the game gets fascinating because if I start an auction, let's say um, I'm the teal player and I start an auction on a location that has no other money on it, I put like maybe three money down on that. I take one of these two pip auction markers and I put it there. And that means that it's going to be two full turns, two full rounds around the table before I win that. So I put that money there. My turn's over. The next person goes. The next person goes. Now it's my turn again. The first thing that I do is every spot where I have, I'm winning an auction, I lower the counter. So that two will turn into a one. And that means I'm still not winning that auction until it goes all the way around the table again where I'm the person who has the highest bid on that spot. Um, so that means you know, from a bid perspective, A, 
your opponents have a lot of time to try and beat you. And B, you're really locking up your money for a long time as well because you have a certain amount of money. I can't remember exactly what it is, maybe 20 tokens or something like that. And um, once your money's on the table, you can't use it for future auctions. So at the beginning of every one of your turns, you count down every one of your things. So um, if I was the yellow player and uh, at the start of my turn, I have an auction here with a with a counter of one, then that means this has gone around enough. I remove the counter and then I leave the money there and I put my token down on top of that spot. Um, after I do that, obviously you can Othello that token as I mentioned uh, earlier, and then the money stays there. So at the beginning of every one of your turns, you pull one money back from every one of the uh, squares in the middle of the board, but every square on the perimeter, which is stronger from an Othello perspective, that money stays there until you spend an entire turn just taking one money back from each of those. So there is a really fascinating tempo to this game where at the start, the board is empty and players are putting these tokens down right in the middle. And again, at the start of your turn, you pull one token, one money token back from the, uh, from every one of the stacks that you've won uh, from the middle. So that means in the beginning of the game, you're spending money and then you're getting it back and you're spending money and you're getting it back. But at a certain point, these tokens are piling up to the point where people start going around the edge and then the tempo goes I don't know, up, down, the, the amount of money that you have available to you goes down and the tempo of the game goes up because suddenly you can start winning auctions for less and less money because everybody has less money because it's becoming more and more locked. In fact, if you put money, if you win one of these corners, which are the strongest parts in the game, the only way to get your money back is for somebody else to outbid you there. You can't take this money back. So it's lost forever, effectively. And that is so interesting. And I don't know if I'm doing a good job of describing how this works, but um, the last mechanic that I do want to say, well, I guess there's two other things things. Um, the first is that if you start an auction on, a, if you outbid an auction, like let's say I wasn't the yellow player, this auction is happening. It's got two money on it and it's got a one counter. So it's gone around the table once. If it goes around the table one more time, the yellow player will take it. Let's say I want to outbid that and I'm the red player. There's two money there of yellows. I put three money down. Yellow takes their money back. So that means they have more liquidity to try and compete in other auctions. And then that token stays at a one. It does not reset back to a two. So it's this crazy game of hot potato where there's a whole bunch of potatoes and they're getting hotter. <laughs> so you have situations on your turn, you can only put your money down on one spot. So do you put it down over here and hot potato that over to you? Or do you maybe say, well, I'm going to start a new auction over here, put a new counter and just have all these counters ticking down. And there's no way my opponents can deal with all of those. And that was just really fascinating. I really quite enjoyed that. The last mechanic to say is that when the game is over, you get points equal to the um, the number of tokens on a stack that you won. So if there's a stack of four tokens with a teal on top, then teal gets four points. If you uh, win a stack of one token, you just get one point. So you're more and more incentivized to win stacks as they get taller and taller. Um, now this game took, oh, about 90 minutes? 80 minutes, something like that. I don't think it was more than an hour and a half to play. Uh, we played it at three players and it was a wacky experience. Um, I will say that I wasn't blown away by the game, but I really enjoyed it and I found it mechanically fascinating. I also found it befuddling, like trying to figure out how the heck you actually play this game well. That's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, I said it was kind of like hot potato, but it also felt like uh, whack-a-mole. <laughs> Maybe whack-a-mole is an, an even better analogy because you're, you're not sure which mole to whack. And sometimes you're like, well, maybe instead of whacking a different mole, I'm just going to add another mole on the board. And then my opponents have to worry about that. And I did a really good job of utilizing the corners. Um, I think I, I transitioned to the corner uh, uh, auctions at the right time, which meant I lost a lot of my liquidity, which made it difficult. But I put a bunch of tokens down and there were a key moment where some, one of my opponents outbid me on a corner and then I, they won that. So I got that money tokens back. And then I immediately started another auction on that spot when none of my opponents were in a position to actually 
compete with me on that. So they won, they put tokens down, and then I won again on top of that, put more tokens down and got even more points. And honestly, I think this was a blowout. I think I had like 40 points compared to like 23 or 20 points from the opponents. But <laughs> the game ends on two different triggers, which honestly I won't go into the specifics of, but if the game had gone one turn longer, not even one round, but one turn past mine, I, I ended the game, then I would have lost and somebody else would have won because they were just about to place a token down to put a whole bunch of their tokens because of the Othello situation. In fact, I have the end game situation um, here so you can kind of see just how much money ended up being locked out on the sides. Like you're not pulling any of this back. And in fact, when the game was over, there was zero money on any of the internal spots because we were so focused on trying to win these uh, these positions around the outside because of the Othello mechanic, just stacking things more and more throughout the middle. Uh, so yeah, this game has a fascinating tempo. It's got tons of decisions. It's got crazy whack-a-mole uh, mechanics. And I'm not really sure how much I like it. I, I liked it. Like, I, I definitely enjoyed it, but I'm not sure if I was overjoyed by it. Like I was contemplating maybe purchasing the game. And I think after playing it once, I'm happy to play this game more, but I don't think I'm going to run out and buy it um, because I don't know. I'm not really sure how much it would actually get played. <laughs> uh, it, it, there are copies of it on sale on the Amazon, the Japanese Amazon, Amazon store. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The more I talk about it right now, I'm like, maybe I should have picked up a copy. Yeah, this game really was really fascinating. And that's the thing. It is super fascinating. But how fun is it for me? I think it's like a 7 out of 10 fun, which is, you know, definitely saying a lot. That's that's better than a lot of games that I play. But I'm not sure if it's enough for me to run out and grab. Um, the fact that it's got this multi-round auction vibe where it's not like, you know, the standard auction like I talked about in GMNO. It's like your turn is just starting a new auction or outbidding somebody else on an auction. Boom, that's it trying to calculate this stuff out and see where everybody else is. I think there's a lot of interesting uh, uh, pathways you can go to go down with your brain, and some people are going to like that more than others. And I think I, I land somewhere in the middle on it. Uh, I did want to talk about it today because I think it's a fascinating game, and I did enjoy it overall. Uh, I would not say no to playing this one more in the future, but I think, yeah, I, I don't think it's the kind of game that I'm going to rush out to suggest, if that makes sense. Um, I will enjoy playing it if I have more opportunities, but it, it it broke my brain in some strange ways, and I won this game by a lot. Uh, I don't think I necessarily won because of randomness. Uh, honestly, part of the reason I won is because my opponents didn't realize I was going to be able to do something and then just end the game immediately, and part of that is crunching through the options and paying attention to, can my opponent end the game on their turn? That is going to change what I do on my turn. And, you know, there's definitely moments where you can capitalize on that. And some people are going to like those kind of things more than others. So yeah, that's Square on Sale. It's like a 14-year-old game. It's uh, an amazing combination of multi-round auctions with Othello-type abstract mechanics. It played great at three. I can imagine it's even crazier at four. Um, it's definitely a tactical, chaotic situation where you're still trying to think multi many turns in the future. And maybe that's where my brain is at, is the fact that it feels like a tactical game where you have to think two plus turns in the future. And that that is kind of a clash, which is fascinating, interesting, but also a little bit frustrating, which um, lends me to feel a bit gray about it overall, like happy to have played it, happy to try it again. But but it didn't click in a way that other games have, and it didn't click in a way that makes me like extremely excited to play this one again in the future. Well, we've now reached the fifth and final game that I'm talking about today, and this game is Twisty Tracks. Now, that's not 
currently the name of it on uh, uh, BGG. The name is uh, in Polish, and I'm not even going to attempt to uh, spell it. <laughs> you can find the spelling in the description of this if you want. Um, but this is a game that I first learned about a couple of months ago, and I immediately got so excited about it because it looked so cute. Um, this is a train-themed game, but this is not a train game. Um, this is a relatively light tile-laying-style game where you are building out these crazy networks of tracks in front of you. And there's a bunch of photos of it online on BGG, and I just instantly fell in love with this game, and I looked to see if I could get a copy. Everything I found set, seemed to intone that it was only published in Polish a few years ago, and so I actually found a reasonably priced copy. I think it was like $39 after shipping to get this game shipped from Poland over here to California, so I bought it. Uh, and then about a week after it arrived, I found out that it has been signed, actually, and it's going to have a North American distribution next year. Uh, I didn't know the publish which publisher that was going to be until this morning, actually. I can tell you that Rio Grande has actually signed this game, and they're uh, planning on publishing it, uh, and they're going to title it Twisty Tracks, which is why that's what I'm going to be calling it here, even though it's technically not called that in Board Game Geek just yet. I'm just, uh, I guess, ahead of the curve. Now let's talk about this game, uh, because every player is going to take one of these borders. They put it in front of them, and then you take four uh, trains, uh, one of each color, and you put them onto the starting train stations. Uh, now, within this border, there is space for a 4x4 grid of square tiles, and one of those is already kind of done. The border kind of uses that. So there's essentially 15 holes in front of you, and every person has an identical deck of these train tiles that are square, and at the start of the game, you shuffle all of these up, and then the structure of the game is super straightforward. Everybody randomly draws the top tile from the stack. They then all simultaneously think about where they want to put this tile down, and it has to extend out a previous track. Once everybody's decided what they want to do, then we all simultaneously place the tile down, and then all of our trains move as far as they can along that track. Um, now, as I said, you start with four trains in their colors, and this has a very Suro vibe for it. If, if you're familiar with Suro or other games like um, Indigo, it's one of those games where you put a tile down and then that extends a path, and then you have to go as far down the path as you can. But um, in this game, you have four tokens each. Every player has their own four tokens, so you're building out your own set, and yes, the tracks are very twisty. <laughs> you make some really twisty things. And there are multiple ways to play this game. This is definitely a family weight game. Um, the, the, there's a base way to play, and then like these two more expert modules, but what I'm going to tell you is, with all the expert stuff added in, because even that is a, a pretty lightweight game. Uh, now, when you move your trains, you actually get one point for every border that you cross. So if you put a tile down, and then you move your purple train like onto a tile, that's a point it leaves the tile to a new one, that's a point. And if it curves around back onto a previous tile that you already scored, you get another point. So that's another point there, and it moves on to another one, and then the train just goes until it, it stops, until it hits a dead end. Uh, or until it hits a train station. So around the outside of the border, uh, everyone has the exact same setup of the, what is it, seven different train stations? And when one of your trains reaches that station, you take one of your tokens, and you plunk it down onto the topmost uh, indicator for that on this train station board. And essentially, it's a race. You want to be the first person to the train station, and the farther the train stations are away from the starting area, the more victory points you get for going there. Um, so yeah, it's just a mixture of trying to get points for sending your trains through lots of twisty annals. Like, the longer the train goes, the more points you get. And then the sooner it gets to train stations, the more points you'll get compared to your opponents. Uh, and you just keep playing this game until everyone has all of their trains at a station, or until everyone has placed all 15 of their tiles. And that's it. So it's just a maximum of 15 turns, and they're all simultaneous. And you score simultaneously, and this game is just a joy. It's just a splendid joy to play. It's, it, I just taught you all of the rules, and I played this game twice, and I want to start by talking about 
um, the, the rules that come in the box. I mean, first of all, the rules were in Polish, uh, but fortunately, um, somebody helped me out and sent me a, an English translation. Um, I did a Google Translate, which mostly got there, but I, I got an English translation as well. Not an official one, uh, but the game is simple enough. And I I really enjoyed just the the toy factor of this game, of putting the tiles down and zipping your little trains along, and then that that feeling of like, okay, I could put this tile down now, and that'll connect up to the, uh, you know, orange station. Um, can anybody else connect up to the orange station? And everybody's thinking simultaneously. And you might see somebody maybe testing out, maybe putting the tile there, maybe they'll put it somewhere else, and you're not sure where they're going to go. And then you all drop them down simultaneously, and you see, like... Do you want to push your luck and wait and, you know, get a little bit farther on the tracks to squeeze out those points? Or do you get unlucky and somebody goes to that station and now when you go there, you're going to get less points? Um, and honestly, that's that's the game. I and mean, it's just it's just wonderful to play. But there's an extra wrinkle to this. And that is that on Board Game Geek, uh, the designer of this game, Jeffrey Allers, um, a couple of years ago, posted a alternate train station board. And um, I want to show that to you now. Um, so this train station board, not to go into the, the specifics of it, um, but it's harder. It's more challenging because there's a lot less uh, spaces on it for uh, you to put tokens. And if you go to put a token down onto one of these train stations and there isn't space, you put it down on the bottom and you lose 10 victory points for it, which is a ton of victory points. Uh, now, on this harder board, there's an exact number of spots for every single train. So that means if everybody plays optimally based off of what other people are going to do, no one is going to suffer these negative points. But if you don't play optimally and you find yourself running into a station that is already full up, you're not getting points for going to that station, you're losing a ton of points. And so the uh, recommendation along with this uh, alternate board was that this is a way to play the game with people who want a crunchier experience. Because the game that I talked about before, it's not crunchy. It's pleasant. It's lovely. But, you know, it's it's very friendly as you're uh, running yourself into various stations and you're getting points. And, oh, no, I'm, you know, one of the last people to go there. I guess I'm going to get one point or zero points. But you're not losing a devastating 10 points for getting in there last. And I have played this game at three players with the original rules and two players with this advanced board. And I'll say that I love the game at both of these counts. But I'll say that when I played this one two players with my wife, Jessica, she didn't like this alternate board as much because she enjoyed how freewheeling and splendid and easygoing, the base rules are. Uh, and she likes mean games, <laughs> like tough, uh, heavyweight Euro games. But just for the weight of this game, she she felt like she would rather not feel stressed as she's putting these trains down, and I totally get that. But I will say that uh, it's my understanding that some form of this board is also going to be available in the U.S. printing of the game. I'm not going to say it's exactly like this. I'm not going to commit to any of that. But it's my current understanding that the original boards and I think this are going to be both there so that you can play a pleasant version of Twisty Tracks, and you can play mean Twisty Tracks where you are sweating bullets the whole time. And I think that it's great that both of those are available. Uh, I do want to say, <laughs> I skipped right over it, but I wanted to show what the final version of this looks like. Once you fill your whole board in, I took a photo of it because there are just so many tracks. They like the, the name of this game really works out when it's called Twisty Tracks. It's my understanding that the original Polish name is actually the name for a popular children's song about trains. I think it's, it translates to the train that travels far or something like that, um, which is lovely. But I think twisty tracks also make sense because you're just twisting and winding all over the place. And honestly, I love this type of uh, mechanic. Like, There's a reason we own Indigo still, which is a Reiner Knizia game that has putting down hexagonal tiles and you move neutral tokens around and then you try to orient them into your own little goals. I think Indigo is wonderful. In this game, you have a similar kind of thing going on, except you have your own area. Like, they're not neutral, they're yours, and you're doing your own thing. And, and I honestly really dislike Suro, which is, like, you know, a simpler version of this, but, like, you only have one pawn, and if you just run into a wall or run into a dead end, then you're just done. 
And uh, that's just not fun for me. So I enjoy making crazy pipelines. There's a, a wonderful um, endorphin hit when you realize you're like, oh, I'm gonna put this tile down and you're like, hold on a second. That means I'm gonna go over here and spiral through that and spin through this and go through that. And you're like, oh my gosh, I just went through like 15 tiles and then landed in a train station. And you just feel like, you know, you made a, a three point shot or a half court shot or something like that, hole in one <laughs> when you do those kind of moments. And you know, that's what I like in games. And then, you know, when it all wraps up, this game takes like 30 minutes to play because it's all effectively simultaneous. So I'm super impressed with this game. Uh, right now, I think it's very difficult to get a copy. I'm not sure if the Polish versions are even available anymore. But again, the Polish version doesn't even come with English rules in the box. And it's my understanding that uh, Rio Grande is going to be publishing a version of this one in early next year. So not too far off. So if this one uh, sparks your interest at all, then definitely add it to, you know, your wish list or whatever, and uh, keep an eye out for uh, an official announcement. Um, specifically, Rio Grande told me that I was okay to to say this. So I guess to a certain extent, I'm kind of announcing it, uh, but uh, this is a lovely game. And uh, I fell in love with it the moment I saw an image of it, and then I got to play it, and I fell in love with it even more. And maybe that's just a bias. Maybe I was expecting to love it, and therefore I really li liked it. But um, for what it is, it's just a great time. It plays so quickly. It The rules teach is so fast, and it's just it's just got a fun toy factor-ness to it, where you just like, you know, you get giggly as you realize how these things can work and all the different uh, uh, ways you can make it happen. Um, I think in the future, I would probably continue to want to play with the stressful board because I, I like that extra feeling of risk, but I could totally see enjoying playing this one either way. Uh, Successful Geek says, it reminds me a little bit of Whistle Stop. Um, yeah, I guess to a certain extent, Whistle Stop is a Bezier game that uh, came out a few years ago, and that one I believe had hexes. And um, you move, I think, your own trains, but along various paths. But that one is more of a medium-weight Euro-y game where you're acquiring resources and spending them at various action points. This game is just about trying to make as long a track as possible. And I did, I guess, kind of gloss over the fact that, you know, the rules I taught you are like the quote-unquote most advanced way to play this game, but there are simpler ways to play this game where you um, don't score for going to stations at all. It's just about going as far as you can on the tracks. And there's an inverse, I think, where it's just about trying to get to the stations. So you can play this with less and less complexity to make it more enjoyable for probably playing the game with younger and younger people. I haven't played it with young people, but I imagine it would play very well at that, especially considering you can rein back on some of the scoring conditions and just play with some twisty tracks with your little trains. Well, that is going to bring this one to a close. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who stopped on by for the live feed for this one and uh, for everybody who watched it afterwards. Uh, and please let me know um, if you are intrigued by any of these games, what part of them really sticks out to you. Uh, some of these are um, somewhat well-known and some of them less so. Uh, I do enjoy finding, you know, the odd diamond in the rough. And I feel like the twisty tracks is certainly like that. And honestly, Square on Sale too. I worried that maybe I was a little bit more negative there than I wanted to be because I, I did enjoy playing that game. <laughs> and I feel like every uh, every minute, every time I think about it, my opinion of it uh, subtly changes, but it never goes under like feeling like it was a, a really fun time that I would not mind playing it again. Um, it just, you know, I have so many games in my collection. I just worry how likely I'd be to be able to get a a strange auctiony abstract game like that played. Uh, but, you know, there's definitely a market for it. Uh, there's a lot of people who enjoy those things, and I, I can continue to play that one online if I want to as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think that is going to bring this one to a close. Thanks again to everybody for watching this video.